Urban legends hold a special place in folklore. They're usually dark tales, mixing touches of truth and twists of fiction, adding a little something new every time they are retold. Often they serve as moral lessons, but at other times, they create a rite of passage through which tellers dare their listeners. In all of these, they are simply a fun way to explain the world around us. Jeff Provine and Tanya McCoy, Haunted Oklahoma City. Everybody, as always, and welcome to another edition of the America of America podcast in the spooky season uh, special edition. This week, we're going to be focusing more around urban legends uh, in the state of Oklahoma, a couple particularly near me in the Oklahoma City metro area. And I also, again, focusing on the Oklahoma City metro area, want to tell about my experiences last weekend. Uh, I had the opportunity to go um, hear ghost stories at the at the Overholster Mansion in Heritage Hills, Oklahoma City. It's one of the oldest and prettiest homes in Oklahoma City and also one of the most notoriously haunted homes. So that was a lot of fun. So I hope to be able to tell a bit of the history about that house and recount some of my personal experiences going through that house. But I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that I'm recording this on Sunday, October 10th. And yesterday was the uh, Red River Shootout the 2021 Red River shootout, the OU Texas game. And oh boy, that was the absolute greatest college football game I've ever seen in my life. I got to go. I was sitting in section 36, which was uh, in the corner of the lower bowl. Uh, I have no words. That was the most incredible sports experience of my life. And I I just feel so incredibly blessed and lucky to have been there and to, you know, that's going to be something that I'm going to tell my kids and grandkids about, but oh my gosh, Greatest football game ever. Boomer Sooner. Texas sucks. But that being said, uh, that took up a lot of my weekend, so I wasn't able to actually start recording this podcast episode until this Sunday, so the Sunday before it comes out, obviously. But that's not to fear. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, front-loading on these on these scary stories, so I, I knew the ones I wanted to tell, and I had the notes pretty well ready to go. And also, there was only one thing that was going to motivate me to get up and be productive on this Sunday, and that was to produce content for this podcast, especially right now when we get to talk about scary stories. it's uh, It really is a lot of fun, and I'm just so happy to be here. So with that, we're going to get into our first story, which is the legend of the Spiro Mounds. So the Spiro Mounds are located in Spiro, Oklahoma, which is uh, in Lafleur County, which is far, far east Oklahoma, almost to the uh, Louisiana and Arkansas borders. And the Spiro Mounds are right now one of the best preserved and largest pre-Columbian Native American, specifically Mississippian complexes that exists in the United States. The Mississippian peoples were what we call mound builders. Uh, a lot of the remnants of their civilization is built around earthen mounds, which function similarly to things if you think about uh, Egyptian pyramids, so large structures largely for ceremonial and burial purposes. 
Spiro specifically is very interesting because it was actually a lot more than that around a thousand years ago. The area of the Spiro Mounds served as an economic hub of Mississippian culture. And I read that there are estimates that up to 10,000 people lived there and it served as a crossroads for trade in the Native American cultures in the Oklahoma area. In modern times, this area was made into a farm owned by a group of Choctaw freedmen, including Rachel Brown, who used the area as a floodplain in order to farm crops. And apparently this was pretty successful in that she was able to expand out her farming activities and even put a barn in the vicinity of the largest mound, which would be the Great Mortuary Mound, otherwise known as the Craig Mound. And here's where things started to get weird because it was said that the horses and the mules that were stored in the barn near that Great Mortuary Mound would be so spooked that they would be unfit to work. Soon after, Brown would also experience the paranormal activity that was spooking her horses and mules, when in 1905, she said that she saw, quote, a tiny wagon pulled by a team of cats emerge from the flames and drove in circles on top of that great mortuary mound. To put in perspective her quote, she saw a chariot being pulled by cats, basically, come out of the top of the great mortuary mound in blue flame. And apparently she was awake when she saw this. That's a wild story, true or not. That's a wild, wild story, and I can see how that would make any horse or mule or person pretty spooked. There's something weird about this story, though, because even if, even if say, you believe it, uh, and Provine points this out in Haunted Oklahoma, that even if you believe that she saw what she saw, the strange thing about it is that the wheels, so is a car being carried by wheels, so essentially a chariot, the wheels didn't exist in the Mississippian culture. They they didn't exist in 1450 when it peaked, and it wouldn't make sense for this to be a ghost of uh, Native American chieftains or something because they wouldn't be in chariots. So it, it's a very kind of odd ghost story, but apparently a lot of people believed it even now. The Spiro Mounds would again become popular 30 years after this incident when in the 1930s, a group of grave robbers were able to, were able to dig into the Great Mortuary Mound where they found a chamber full of bodies that had been buried, but they were still buried in their fine clothes, and they found a number of artifacts, including ceramic pipes. And so these grave robbers became very, very wealthy and influential very quickly. Newspapers would dub this discovery as America's King Tut's Tomb, which if you know anything about the real King Tut's tomb excavation expedition, it came with supposedly the mummy's curse, and the Spiro Mounds expedition was no different. One of the men who was digging on the expedition ended up being buried alive when a shaft caved in. Uh, another local preacher who had been there to secure the leasing rights for that dig ended up being found dead in a creek. And one of the main digger, who was a guy named Pacola, his lawyer, mysteriously was found dead in his office. Were these deaths the result of a Mississippian curse for those who disturbed their resting places, or just a string of bad luck? I will leave you to decide that, but it is a quite a wild story that we in Oklahoma really do have kind of a King Tut situation, not only that... We have this incredible, incredible wealth of archaeological uh, archaeological sites that need to be preserved, but that the 
relentless pursuit of greed and disrespect for these sites can have horrific consequences, not just uh, in a curse-wise, so losing your life-wise, but that we've lost many of those archaeological treasures that were taken from the Spiro Mounds. Next, we're going to move into uh, some Oklahoma City urban legends, which I'm really excited about because when I was in high school, I bought, I got to partake in both of these, even though they were Sadly, if you were expecting me to come in and tell you a story about how I saw a ghost, you'll be you'll be sorely disappointed. But they were still fun to do when, you know, you're 16, 17 years old and you have nothing else to do on a weekend. The first of these legends is called the Purple Church. The Purple Church, as it was explained to me when I was a kid, was basically a satanic cult black mass place in northeastern Oklahoma City in a town specifically called Spencer. It was said when I was in high school that if you went there at certain times of night, you could find a satanic coven performing black masses, sacrificing animals, or maybe sacrificing virgins or something. Many people talked about going there, no, though few people ever really did. And it came to be that the Purple Church is not only just hard to get to, it's also on private property, so you don't really want to go look for it. It was said that the satanic coven would spray purple occult marks on the walls, hence why this place was dubbed the Purple Church. If there were really purple spray paint marks on the walls, that may be true, but it was never actually really a church. The site is really a cellar out in the middle of the field, so it's more of a small storage space than anything you would imagine if you're thinking of the word church. The spooky factor with the Purple Church is elevated because getting there is also scary, especially at night. It requires driving through narrow country roads or going on foot in heavily wooded areas, which in the fall season are missing a bunch of leaves. So it creates this kind of eerie, spooky ambiance. So a lot of people are scared out of their wits before they even get to the Purple Church itself. Another way to add to the spooky ambiance is to add a spooky history. And this, urban legend tellers have done by linking the Purple Church to the case of Sean Sellers. Sellers was an Edmund teenager who in 1985 was convicted of murdering his mother and his stepfather in an apparent fit of satanic rage. Sellers admitted to not only being a Satanist, but having attended many black masses across Oklahoma City and Edmund, and doing things like drinking goat's blood. Though he never indicated that he stepped foot in something like the Purple Church, it quickly became popular to associate sellers with the Purple Church, which would give it an extra sense of an extra sense of authenticity. Those brave or irresponsible teenagers who go to see the Purple Church today sometimes talk about being run off the land by men in black robes who are thought to be members of this satanic coven, though the people that are actually running the kids off are probably the owners of the property because, like I said, the Purple Church is on private property, and I imagine if I owned a wooded area, I wouldn't want teenagers traipsing across, definitely not teenagers who might be interested in satanic ritual. So, the Purple Church, is there a lot to it? No, but I think it's a really good example of how kind of mundane uh, incidents that might have affected one or two teenagers can quickly become these 
widespread urban legends, which leads us to our second urban legend, which is Kitchen Lake Bridge in Norman. Kitchen Lake Bridge, which is attached to the Kitchen Lake, uh, which is a lake south of Oklahoma City famous for its fishing, uh, came to become an urban legend because it was said that near Kitchen Lake Bridge, out on Airline Road, there was a house in which a witch lived in. And when the witch was performing her black magic, somehow the house burned down and that all that remains is a chimney. And that if you drive by the bridge at night, you can see things burning in the chimney and the remnants of that witch. It's a very popular place to go because unlike uh, the Purple Church, it's fairly easy to get to. And I remember when I went, so I went in probably 2011 or 2012, must have been about 10 years ago. Uh, there was a YouTube video of a local group going and seeing something. There was something that flashed across the camera, which at the time I thought was really cool. So I grabbed my friends. We all hopped in my car and drove down there. And it was eerie. It was dark and it was creepy because it was out in the middle of nowhere. But we saw no ghosts. So that was disappointing or good, depending on how you want to look at it. Moving on to our final story of today's podcast, uh, we're going to talk about one of the great, not only haunted houses in Oklahoma City, but just truly one of the great homes of Oklahoma City, and that is the Overholster Mansion. The Overholster Mansion is a beautiful, beautiful Victorian Gothic mansion that was built at a, in the early part of the 20th century and sits on a street corner in Heritage Hills, Oklahoma, and is one of the most popular homes to look at from the street. It was built by a man named Henry Overholzer, who is one of the great boosters of early Oklahoma City. Henry Overholzer was originally from Ohio and took railroads all over the place to make his fortune. Originally, he was a mine owner in Colorado. So if you think back to our stories about Big Ann Wynn, where she got her, where she got her start in Leadville, Colorado during the mining craze, it's not hard to imagine that Henry Overholzer was in a pretty similar position at the time, though, and when went into organized crime, whereas Henry Overholzer went into railroad cars. Well, he got railroad cars, but what was more important is what he packed in those railroad cars, because when Henry Overholzer decided to come to Oklahoma during the land run of 1889 and the ones that came after, he packed them railroad cars with lumber and building supplies understanding that a city was going to be built, Oklahoma City. And when he got to Oklahoma City, that's exactly what he did. He began building, and he built a hotel, which apparently was one of the great early luxury hotels of Oklahoma City that no longer stands. He built an opera house, and he also started the state fair. And then he ran to be county commissioner. Actually, I believe he might have been county commissioner. I'm really not sure on that. My notes aren't very good. I do know that he ran for mayor, and he lost the mayoral election by 14 points. And around then, I guess, he decided to marry the daughter of the postmaster of Eureka Springs and to build his great mansion out in what was, at the time, the country. Now, Heritage Hills is a neighborhood in Oklahoma that is fairly close to downtown and midtown, just north of downtown and midtown to be certain. But at the time, it was out there. And at the Overholster Mansion, they have photos of the Overholster Mansion and its early state. And you can tell that there is nothing around it. It is just green fields as far as the eye can see. Henry Overholster's wife, Anna, was known as one of the most capable 
society ladies of the time, regularly hosting the, these incredible galas and entertaining basically every single important person that came through Oklahoma City. And I was told that she even at one point, I think, hosted and entertained Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. Anna would eventually die in 1940, and her daughter, Henry Ione, would live in the house until her death, and then the house was eventually handed over and made a museum in 1959. What's most incredible about that is the original furniture still remains in the house, and if you go through the Everholster Mansion, it really looks exactly like it did in its heyday, which makes it one of the most well-preserved home museums, especially of a certain time period. Now, the fact that all the original furniture is also in there also lends it kind of an eerie feeling that you you get the feeling that this is a very old house and those old houses that tend to be haunted or they're the kinds of houses that we tend to see in horror movies. So you can walk in there and it's not hard to get the vibes that you're standing in a haunted house. And haunted it is. Uh, the Overholster Mansion is given tours through an entirely voluntarily run group. Many of the volunteers who give tours have been there for many years, and at this point, it seemed like they all had experiences. When I was there last weekend, everybody was super nice, and everybody was super uh, quick to tell stories or to answer any of your questions. Um, Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips was there in all of his uh, um, ghost pajama regalia, and he actually asked some quite poignant questions, And uh, but we all, we all heard some great stories, and the stories really garner around or center around Anna, the matron of the house who is often said to be seen in the house in her later years wearing a white dress with a stiff white collar with her hair all done up. Most of the people that see this apparition house describe the apparition as looking like Anna Overholzer. When I was there and we were in the attic, which is where most of the activity takes place, one of the volunteers showed us the area where Henry Ione, who is Anna's daughter, used to play when she was a child. Well, not that she used to play there, but her bassinet and her toys were in the area. Now, the volunteer showed me something that was really very interesting. She showed me a uh, basically a, a piece of the a bit of ground where there was dust everywhere, except there was no dust where there was a child's footprint. And this footprint was not of a baby. It looked to be the footprint of maybe a kid who's two to three years old, larger than uh, a baby's footprint, but definitely a small child. The volunteer swore to us that there had been no children in that area. And what's more, it was a footprint in facing the interior part of a display case, meaning that the footprint was coming from a child who was inside the display case rather than someone who was stepping in to the display area. Now, this was obviously really cool, and I got pictures of it, and I'll, I'm going to put it on the uh, on on the uh, the Instagram for this podcast. So if you're interested, you can see what I'm talking about because I'm not doing a good job explaining it. But I was also a bit skeptical because whenever I hear about ghosts, especially when ghosts manipulate matter, it doesn't really seem to be stuff like that. But there are more conventional ghost stories that go on in the Overholster Mansion. One of the volunteers told me a story about when she was 
cleaning the house and also giving tours through the house. And she kept on hearing uh, a weird crackling sound, almost like a crackling sound of glass breaking or something like that. And she talked about how she was going all through the house cleaning, looking for where the sound was coming from, because at the time she was the only person in the house. This actually, I take that back. This story began after all the tours were done. She was just cleaning it up. And after going through the entire house, finishing her cleaning and hearing this crackling, clack, excuse me, crackling sound, she came down to the interior foyer by the front door and found that the crackling sound was coming from her plastic water bottle. And the crackling sound was the sound that a water bottle makes when you squeeze it a little bit and the plastic compresses and decompresses. Now, the reason that it's so creepy is that that crackling sound can only happen when someone squeezes the bottle. The bottle that she found had water in it, but she was the only person in the house, so something else had to be squeezing the bottle for it to make that sound. Further stories about the Overholster Mansion come from the resident paranormal investigatory group that sets up shop in the attic, the most notoriously haunted area of the house. And on all of the ghost story tours, they generally have two members up there to answer questions. Uh, when we went and talked to them, they seemed to be very into the EVPs or electronic voice phenomenon that they were able to get from the Overholster Mansion. And they were, I don't know, my, my problem with electronic voice phenomena is that it seems to be random sounds that someone tells you means something. And from there, it's kind of power suggestion. So I don't put a lot of weight onto it. But a lot of people, a lot of people, I guess, take them seriously. There was actually a guy there who, uh, who, who was asking these paranormal investigators about if they were kind of, you know, getting in dangerous territory by not being sure if they were talking to a human spirit or a, uh, a, um, out of, uh, or a non-human spirit, meaning possibly a demon, which obviously as a practicing Roman Catholic, I was very concerned about as people, you know, going in and getting very into these, uh, these kind of the darker areas of, of the unknown. But Apparently, um, they haven't had any problems, and I'm very glad for them, and I hope that they never have any problems with any sort of spiritual phenomena. Finally, I want to tell my own personal experience about the Everholster Mansion. Uh, though I've never seen a ghost in the Everholster Mansion, I have been, I guess, maybe very close to an experience. When I was 10 or 11 years old, so this would have been 2005 or 2006, a friend of mine's friend of mine and his family took me to the Upper Holster Mansion to hear ghost stories in the month of October. And one of the most common experiences that people have in the house is smelling roses. And this is connected to Anna Oberholzer, who apparently often had rose-scented perfume, so it was often said that people will smell roses in the mansion and then step away and the rose scent will be gone and it does not linger, it comes and it is gone. Now, at the conclusion of this tour, so we ended on the third story and then everybody walked down to the first story to leave the house. When we were on the staircase, and granted there has to be about 10 or 11 people in this tour group getting down to the first story, the tour guide and the first five people in line stopped and said that they smelled roses. And I remember seeing them stop and what they smelled, it seemed to be sincere they sincerely smelled the rose-scented perfume, and then it was gone. Unfortunately, I was so far back in line 
that uh, I couldn't smell it. I didn't smell anything, but I do remember seeing the people in front of me smell it and sincerely believe that they had smelled something. And it was kind of spooky. Um, for the rest of, you know, the next 15 years, I believe that, sorry, you can hear my roommate in the background watching Sunday Night Football. But I always believed that that rose scent was pumped into the room, that it was it was something fake. And yeah, I think that I always thought the tour guides wanted to uh, get a rise out of the uh, out of the the customers or the visitors. Now, I did press the tour guides on this uh, on this topic last time I was there. So a week ago, and they were very insistent that there is no rose scent pumped in, that there is no scent pumped in because the the regulations with the house, because it's a, it's a national registered place of historical significance in both the state and the federal level. Those have terms that I cannot remember what they are right now, but you know what I'm talking about. Because the house is so heavily reg, re, relegated, regulated, excuse me, regulated is the word I'm looking for there, they have to clean things with baby wipes. Um, it would be impermissible for them to bring anything like that into the house and release a foreign scent. And I guess I take their word for it. Uh, I, I do see how it'd be difficult if the smell is there and goes away immediately. Uh, it seems maybe like if they were pumping scent in, then the scent would maybe stay and linger because the scent would get on objects, so the rose scent would continue. And if the scent goes away, then maybe it's not being pumped in. But I guess maybe I'm skeptical. But if you're ever in Oklahoma City and you want to see a haunted place, I suggest you go to the Overholster Mansion. Uh, if you're in Oklahoma City and you just want to see one of the great houses of the early 20th century, I suggest you go to the Overholster Mansion. It really is worth the, your time, and it's very affordable, and the people there are so nice. It really is just a lot of fun. Now, if you want to get another great haunted experience in Oklahoma City, I recommend you go to the Skirvin Hotel, specifically the 10th floor of the Skirvin Hotel which we will get to next week on the America of America podcast. And with that, thank you so much for listening. I've had a great time telling these stories. I hope you enjoyed listening to these stories. I hope everybody is having a wonderful October. If you're like me and you live in the Oklahoma and Texas area, it's been a very hot weekend, but I'm so excited for the weather to get cooler again next week and we can experience some real fall. And then we can tune in back next week for some more scary stories. So with that, I'm Will Milam. This is the America of America podcast, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.